at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he does according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. Then David blessed the Lord before all the congregation, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens or on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. And in your hand is power and might, and in your hand it is to make great or to give strength to all. So therefore, Lord, we thank you, and we praise your glorious name. First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 through 13. One of the greatest memories I have as a boy, my very early spiritual moments of awakening, was standing in church with my grandparents. And before I was old enough to read and didn't fully understand the meaning of the words, I remember thrills of awareness and awakening going through me as I would hear the, 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 the songs Come thou almighty king. O worship the king, all glorious above. Crown him with many crowns. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. I still miss the feeling of being with people who were all focused on God himself. His glory his majesty, his dominion, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his glorious being. Too high to reach it and too glorious to understand it. Not trying to bring it down to where we were, but trying to bring ourselves up to where he was. I, I, all that goes through my mind sometimes when I'm in churches, and I don't, here again, I don't say this to be critical. It's just a need I've got to say out loud that what's missing so often, thankfully it's coming back in many, many places, but what's missing so often in church activities is, is awe. And the reason we miss awe is because we do not present God as awesome. And there's parts of the church that keep this properly protected better than other parts. And we'll all come together and bring balance to one another eventually. But I'm saying all that as a preface to what we're going to get into in our time together 
That is the sovereignty of God and prayer. The sovereignty of God and prayer. Because sadly, I've more often than not had people say to me at some point things like, well, if God is sovereign and he knows everything and can do anything and nothing can withstand his will, what good does it do to pray? Why bother why bother with praying at all? Whatever will be, will be. And that brings us back to three, three statements that I referred to earlier in our study on prayer. And I want to revisit those three statements and re-examine them a little more in, in some detail as we look more closely at this subject of God's sovereignty and our prayers. I'm not just talking about God's sovereignty as a, as a subject on its own. God's sovereignty as it relates to our prayers. Remember those three statements that I referred us to? Uh, they're cliches, and cliches most of the time lose any valid meaning. But let's, let's ask the question, are these, are these statements, cliche as they may be, do they have valid meaning that we need to go back and, and recover? if all they have become is cliches. Number one, the, the statement, God is in control. You hear it all the time. God is in control. Uh, uh, the next statement that you hear is, everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. And then the third one has a little more gravitas to it because it is actually a full scripture. And that's, Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. But we pointed out repeatedly, and I'm sorry if I'm boring you with repetition, but all things work together for good is not what the verse says. And if you quote the entire verse 28, you still haven't quoted the entire statement properly because verse 28 is preceded by, by verses 23, 24, 25, 26, and 27. So is it right to say that all things work to, together for good? I, I made the very blunt statement, no, it's not right. But let me go back and unpack this a little bit before we go farther. God is obviously in control because if God is not in control, whoever is in control would be God. So that in itself is kind of a logic, logical no-brainer. God is in control. But if we mean by God is in control, that therefore everything that happens happens for a divine purpose, then we're getting into territory that's got good reason to be rejected. No, everything does not happen for a reason. And all things do not work together for good. God is in control, but that doesn't mean God is directly responsible for every event that occurs. Although there are people who take certain scriptures on their own without being balanced by other scriptures and try to make a case for the idea that everything that has ever happened or ever will happen has already been predetermined by God's sovereign power and wisdom, and therefore 
when you have some terrible tragedy that occurs in your life, it's because it was predestined from the foundation of the world. Because after all, everything happens for a reason. And all things work together for good. Well, I believe that the use of those three phrases out of context is a form of Christian superstition at best and borderline blasphemy at worst. And at any rate, whether it's ignorance or full-blown false doctrine, it does hinder the prayer life as well as other aspects of the life of every believer who believes it. These sayings are all true only in a certain context. And if taken out of that context, they become not only not true, but anti-truth. If we mean everything that occurs, no matter how horrible, no matter how cruel, no matter how demonic it may be, is all somehow God's predestined plan and that he's perfectly ordained it and it's okay with him because it's all working according to his detailed micromanaged purpose and we neither have any say in it or any responsibility over it, then the answer is no. None of those concepts are valid. God is sovereign. There's no doubt about that. Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But did you know that that same Psalm 115 has another verse in it that closes up the thought of the entire Psalm? And that's verse 16. And you know what it says? The heavens, even the heaven of heavens, are the Lord's. But the earth he has given to the children of men. So, let's keep it in balance. There are things that God intends for man to set in motion that God, who is obviously in control, provides the wherewithal for men to do that but the choice making and the outcome is not something God directly manages. Let me give you some scripture to support that. Psalm 46, verse 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old, says the Lord. For I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. I have purposed it, and I will also do it. Some more verses that celebrate divine sovereignty. Psalm 42, verse 2. I know, Lord, that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Proverbs 16.9, a man's heart makes its plans, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 19.21, there are many plans in a man's heart, but the Lord's counsel will stand. Proverbs 20, verse 24, the king's heart is a stream in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Or more strongly, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, 
we are predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Or Philippians 2.13, God works in you both to will and to accomplish his good pleasure. Philippians 3.21, he is able even to subdue all things to himself. All these verses affirm God's sovereignty. His ability to do whatever he wants, however he wants. But none of these verses affirm that everything that happens is God's will or God's direct doing. In fact, fact, it's just the opposite. They show resistance to his will. Any doctrine that attributes to God the practicing of evil is a doctrine of demons. Any doctrine that attributes to God the direct willing and accomplishing of that which is evil is a false doctrine. Amos chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Well, you know, before we get to that, let me just say, make a comment about Philippians 2, for instance, or Philippians 3. He is able to subdue all things to himself. If all things are predestined by him to the point that he micromanages everything that happens, why would he need to, quote, subdue anything? Subduing, the word subdue means to bring into submission. To bring into submission implies that the thing being brought into submission is in rebellion. So for there to be rebellion, there has to be a freedom to be rebellious. And God has obviously made that freedom not only available, but part and parcel of what it means to be created in his image and likeness. I'll be honest with you, having to say any of this sounds a little bit silly to me. And I don't mean that to be disrespectful to anybody who might have been embracing a way of thinking that implies God is directly in control of every detail. But I I guess I get a little frustrated with what is really an obvious lack of thinking. Uh, and and one of the one of the things I remember as a boy when I, and whenever I would, for those of you who don't know it, like you've never heard me say it before, I was raised in a, a Calvinistic background, and I grew up hearing these kinds of statements all the time. Uh, and I've made reference to the fact that when I was molested as a boy at about age 11, uh, 10, 11, 12, right through there, when I was being exposed to things no boy should ever be exposed to, uh, I can remember clearly, clearly thinking this was not an imposition of an adult mind onto a child's mind. Uh, you know, I thought it as a child because I'd heard it taught repeatedly. This could not be happening to me if God had not ordained it because everything that happens, God ordained or it wouldn't be happening. And so I, won't, I don't have to tell you all the, the, the false ways of thinking that spawned in me. 
Well, what about Amos chapter 3? I, I, I just mentioned it. What about Amos 3, 5, and 6? When the war trumpet blares, shouldn't the people be alarmed? When disaster comes to a city, hasn't God planned it? What about that verse, Clay? Or what about Isaiah 45, verse 7? I am the Lord who makes prosperity and plans calamity. Well, context, context, context. You know, they say in real estate, nothing is more important than location, location, location. Well, that's nothing compared to context, context, context. Obviously, these verses are referring to God telling the people that when there is a calamity, God has ordained it as a judgment because of the people's rebellion and wickedness and their choices that they've made that have set in motion uh, circumstances that God will see to it that those circumstances bring the proper calamity that hopefully will bring awakening, that will bring repentance so that God's ultimate will can be done, which is healing and cleansing and restoration. That's why Second Chronicles chapter 7.14 has got to always be kept in mind along with those verses I just quoted from Amos and Isaiah. Second Chronicles 7.14, everybody should be able to quote it. That's our problem. We can quote it, but are we doing it? If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and restore their broken land. A.W. Tozer said concerning the sovereignty of God, quote, God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice and man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, he does not counter the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice the man should make, but that he should be free to make it. If in his absolute freedom God has willed to give man limited freedom, who is there to stay God's hand or say, what are you doing? Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so because it would get out of hand and become unmanageable even for God if God was not sovereign. Freedom limited by and within sovereignty. That's the reality of human life. Tozer's picture is of an ocean liner predestined to a specific port, but with people on the ocean liner making all sorts of free decisions within the limits of their ability to function on the predestined ship. There are all kinds of things that prayer might alter on that ship. There are all kinds of things prayer might contribute to in order to help the ship forward. But nothing will alter the aim of the ship. It's predestined and carried by the predetermined sovereignty of God. 
but within the boundaries of that ship are all kinds of free choices that are not micromanaged by God. That should not be hard for us to understand. But I've said this so often, religion seems to make us lose our ability to think clearly. Uh, You can talk about grace in an insurance office, a grace period. We, We talk about grace and we seem to understand it. But we go to church and uh, hear the word, same word, grace, and we get all kind of funny ideas about what it means. Well, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5 through 7, and then verse 13. Listen to this story. God is speaking of the Assyrian. He is my rod that I wield in my anger. And the staff of my wrath is in my hand. I send him against a godless nation. I bid him march against a people who have awakened my wrath because of their wickedness in order to spoil and plunder at will and trample them down like mud in the streets because of their wickedness. And he says they have freedom of will to do this. But then he says in the next verse, but the Assyrians' purpose is lawless. Lawless are the plans in his mind. He's free to think them. They are his free will choices, but they are not my determined will. He is not fulfilling my will. I don't know how anybody can read these verses and still come up with the idea that every thought somebody thinks is God's will. I mean, one one horrendously bad doctrine that came from those who teach this is that God has a, a known will and a secret will. Now, never mind that there's no Bible verses to support that. Never mind that they obviously pulled it out of their own fallen, broken, sinful imagination. But the I, you you got to understand this is considered biblical doctrine in some circles. God has a known will and he's got a secret will. His known will is what's happening here in Isaiah chapter 10. His secret will is all the bad stuff that's happening that God seems to not be happy with. But that's God's secret will. So you might picture God as having two puppets, one on one hand, one on the other hand, and on one hand his puppet is smiling and happy because his will is being done, but on the other hand his puppet has got a snarly, ugly face on it, and it's not doing what God wants, but it's okay because God is controlling both puppets, which just means that you believe in a God who's schizo. Anyway, it goes on to say, for his thought, his 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 thoughts are lawlessness. I've given him free will, but his thoughts are lawless. For his thought is only to destroy, to wipe out nation after nation. When the Lord has finished all that he means to do on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem in the way of punishment and correction, he then will also punish the king of Assyria. For the fruit of his arrogance and pride, says the Lord. 
Then he goes on to say in verse 13, ultimately, God is totally in control of this because can a saw use the carpenter to cut down a tree? A saw doesn't use a carpenter. The carpenter uses the sword or the saw. God is the one who's setting in motion all this, but yet God is not, clearly is not, directing that which is against his will and making it happen anyway, as if God is a schizophrenic wackadoodle. Freedom to decide and change pre-known outcomes. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 13. David is uh, up against his enemies in an area uh, known as Cala. And Saul has gathered troops there to attack David and to kill him. And, and David asks the Lord this question, Will the leaders of the city turn me over to Saul? Will they turn on me and turn me over to Saul? And God answers David, they will. So David and his men fled the city, and Saul, when he learned of David's escape, gave up his plan to attack David. Now, you can get into the weeds on this and start saying, well, this, that was whatever happens was God's predetermined plan. Whatever happens. So the bad choices that are being made in the story we just read about the Assyrians. That was predetermined by God. No, look, it obviously was not predetermined by God. The outcome is overseen by God, and nothing can thwart that. So when we willfully choose to do something that's outside God's predetermined will, God is obviously strong enough, wise enough, smart enough, powerful enough to bring about his eternal purpose not only in spite of man's willful wrong choice, but actually through it. We'll talk more about that maybe in just a bit. But the question is, is there random events? Are there random events in creation? God's sovereignty is the attribute by which he rules his entire creation. And to be sovereign, God must be all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free. The reasons are these. I'm quoting again from A.W. Tozer here. Were there even one datum of knowledge, however small, unknown to God, his rule would break down at that point. To be Lord over all creation, he must possess all knowledge. And were God lacking in one infinitesimal modicum of power that that lack would end his reign and undo his kingdom? That one stray atom of power would belong to someone else and God would be limited in his rulership and hence not sovereign. Furthermore, his sovereignty requires that he be absolutely free, which means simply that he must be free to do whatever he wills to do anywhere at any time to carry out his eternal purpose in every single detail without interference. If he were less than free, he must be less than sovereign. 
Now, God is free to do spooky things. Spooky, remember we talked about spooky physics? Roger Shepard of Stanford University, a physicist, says, quote, we may be heading toward a situation where knowledge is just too complicated to understand. Another MIT physicist says, quote, there's not one thing in physics I'm absolutely sure of now. Referring to the uncertainty principle, chaos theory, indeterminism, vacuum fluctuations, various other aspects of quantum physics. I've mentioned previously in this study that Einstein resisted the facts that were being discovered in quantum physics because he did not want a universe that had any random activity in it. He said famously, quote, God does not play dice with the universe. He also said that whenever he considered the heavens, there was what he referred to as, quote, a cosmic religious feeling that moved him deeply. Dr. Richard Swenson says of this statement by Einstein, quote, God, I believe, takes particular delight in creating meaning beneath the surface of the apparent. Despite all Einstein's brilliant insights in theoretical physics, he resisted the weirdness of atomic behavior for as long as he could. Perhaps it is best to simply accept the fact that when things get this small, the nature of reality itself changes. Changes how? Well, for instance, electrons move back and forth from an energy state to a particle state. This is one of the spooky things Einstein didn't like. Those who understand these issues far more than I can ever understand them says, quote, if you look for a particle, you find one. But if you look for a wave, you find one. This touches on the metaphysical dimension. Gerhard Stegen says, quote, these waves of matter can no longer be attributed a substantial content, only a spiritual one. Scientist and author Timothy Ferris says, quote, electrons orbiting each atomic nucleus obey weird rules performing quantum leaps, for instance, which means disappearing from one spot and reappearing at another without traversing the space in between them. Then there's quarks. We won't take any time here to talk much about quarks, even except to say they are very useful if you're playing Scrabble and you have a Q and a U. That's when they're really, really helpful. Uh, they were theorized to exist in 1964, and proven to exist in 1968. If we could enlarge an atom to the size that would fill the space from here to the moon, then the proton of that atom would be about the size of a football field, and a quark would then be the size of a golf ball. Quarks, explained Gerhard Stegen, 
are located in a physical somewhere between matter and spirit. Danish physicist Niels Bohr said, those who are not shocked when they first come across quantum theory cannot possibly have understood it. In the quantum world, reality simply alters beyond recognition. Brian Greene, quantum theorist from Columbia University, says, quote, the only thing we know with certainty is that quantum mechanics absolutely and unequivocally shows us that a number of basic concepts essential to our understanding of the familiar everyday world fails to have any meaning when our focus narrows to the microscopic realm. The single word that seems to sum up why scientists are so uncomfortable with all this is the word indeterminism, or maybe unpredictability, chance, randomness, and uncertainty. As Dr. Swenson says, these words are heresy in classical physics. Everything is, in classical physics, set, predetermined, without the element of choice. The doctrine of Newtonian physics seems to confirm a similar theological point of view that says the same thing from a spiritual standpoint. God made the world in a moment, and in that moment, every event that would ever take place, no matter how horrible, no matter how unjust, was, quote, predestined. I've already said that as a boy, I was exposed to this kind of thinking repeatedly. In fact, I was exposed to it as part of the normal Christian wallpaper uh, it was just the way everybody talked. It was the way everybody thought. And so I grew up hearing this stuff, and whenever terrible things happened to me, I would think this was predetermined, so it had to happen this way. And when bad things happened to other people, I would wonder why they were objects of God's direct anger, what they had done to attract that anger. But then as I got a little older and learned more of the doctrine, I realized it had nothing to do with their behavior. God just sovereignly chose to hate some people and love others. So it's no mystery that I did not know the love of God and my prayer life was only one of panicking cries for help now and then. I only hoped to gain his favorable attention for my well-being, still knowing it really didn't matter what I did because it was all already predestined and set in stone anyway. This thinking is supposed to be honoring to God by granting our belief of him that he's in total, unalterable, direct control over every tiny detail of every teeny, wincy moment in the universe. That's how I believed the first two decades of my life. I fought the tendency to revert to that way of thinking for the next two decades until I finally renewed my mind with the word of God by studying it for myself and learning to draw close to the real God instead of a facsimile of him created by the imaginations of other people. Then I could trust him to guide me into the truth. Now at best, this thinking is silly. At worst, 
It's blasphemous. It does not affirm God's sovereignty. It actually denies it. For God to be sovereign, he must be free. Determinism's God is not free. He must adhere to the imagination of the theologians who say that for him to be sovereign, he must keep their rules. And their rules include that he must be absolutely, totally in control of every moment, no matter how evil. Every horrible event must be his direct sovereign choice. Any logic that points out the obvious error, beyond error, blasphemy, of such a thought, that such a being who would do such a thing would have to be evil himself. They just totally set aside that logic. The end result of this thinking has been a history of doctrinal insanity too terrible and too long to recount. A truly sovereign God is free. He is so free that he can give freedom to his creatures made in his image and is so wise that he can still achieve his eternal purposes not only in spite of man's wrong choices, but even through them. He seems to have demonstrated this in a trillion funny, mysterious, inexplicable varieties in the quantum world. They seem to be a clear theological statement of the reality of indeterminism within the confines of sovereign control. Inside his control, random craziness abounds. And our freedom to choose is also real. Our choices do make a difference. So most certainly then do our prayers What is happening in the quantum level of reality when we willfully lift our voice to God and name before him our heart's longing and desire? Think of it. He's so loving, so wise, and so powerful that he is able to maintain his purpose, give us freedom to make our own decisions, and still end up at the close of history being both sovereign and good. This has to be digested in worship more than in philosophical contemplation. The cross is the worst event and the best event in the universe. It was predestined by God and carried out by limited degree of human free will by evil men in order to save man from evil. What can you possibly think of that could be more amazing? This, this leads you to do nothing but worship and gratitude and awe. Have you ever thought about God playing? C.S. Lewis said in the midst of his deep grief at the death of his beloved wife, Joy, quote, heaven will solve our problems, but not, I think, by showing us subtle reconciliations between all our apparently contradictory notions. The notions will all be knocked from underneath us. We shall see that there never was any problem. And more than once I've had the impression, which I can't describe except by saying 
that it's like the sound of a chuckle in the darkness. The sense that some shattering and disarming simplicity is the real answer. That statement might have been passed aside or, 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 or ignored, tossed aside, if it had been made in a moment of philosophical reverie. But it was made when Lewis's heart was at its deepest sorrow. And yet he still speaks of the sound of a chuckle in the darkness. That Could it actually be that our deepest sorrow in the light of eternal mourning is going to make us all roar with laughter? This dazzling display of cosmic comedy that seems to laugh and make fun of our over-serious and fearful small-mindedness, while at the same time rebuking our overly self-confident certitude, must be to some degree at least what Paul was trying to help us see when he says, quote, that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in, to, and through us. Our light affliction is but for a moment, working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at what is seen, but what is not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Romans chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is obviously trying to tell us things he knows which he has observed. He's not talking mere philosophy or even theology. His wording and the way he phrases it and the intensity of his words have the sound of an eyewitness account that's still beyond his even masterful Greek language. Greek scholars tell us that he seems to be inventing new Greek words that stretch the limits of language when he tries to express himself about all these things. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or think. Or, as the Passion translates it, he will achieve infinitely more than your greatest request, your most unbelievable dream and exceed your wildest imagination. He will outdo them all. Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 9, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it even entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. The New English translation of that says, Things beyond our seeing, things beyond our hearing, Things beyond our imagining, all being prepared for those who love him. When I was a boy, the mention of the sovereignty of God eventually conjured images of austere, remote, unapproachable capriciousness, cold and totally indifferent to me or to my pain or to the pains and sorrows of the world. This was exalted as orthodoxy. But the real God is for certain, glorious beyond imagining, pure and holy beyond understanding. He is certainly omnipotent, omnis, omnipresent. 
power without end, understanding which we cannot grasp, which certainly includes all space, but also all time. But when he most wants to reveal himself, it is not in power or even in knowledge, but in love. An old song from my teenage years helped me begin to reach out to him from my darkened theological misunderstandings imposed upon me by my early church wrong-headed focus that seemed intoxicated with sheer sovereignty. Those words said, How big is God? How big and wide his vast domain? To try to tell these lips can only start. He's big enough to rule this mighty universe, yet small enough to live within my heart. So with this understanding, we may correctly say that God is in control of everything, obviously. Everything does not happen for a reason, but God's wisdom can turn all things toward the ultimate good, for he works all things together for our good, who are the called according to his eternal purpose, for he works all things after the counsel of his own will. Or as Paul says in the closing words of Romans 11, for God has consigned all men to disobedience only that he may have mercy on all men. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unfathomable are his decisions. How intractable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has understood his thoughts or been his counselor? Who has first given to God so that God can have to pay him back? For from him and through him and to him are all things. All things live through him and center in him and consummate back to him. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So how do we account for evil? What a short question to such a long answer. But we're going to at least attempt to examine it. In order to address this question of not only evil but horrendous evil and the spiritual warfare that we see around us, I'm going to do something I don't normally do, and that's quote extensively from an entire chapter of Mere Christianity. Because Lewis says what he says here so much better than I could say it, and covers in detail with succinct language many of the most important points that I want to communicate. So based on that, listen carefully, even if you've read it before. It's no good asking for a simple religion. After all, real things are never simple. They look simple, but they're not. The table I'm sitting at looks simple. But ask a scientist to tell you what it's really made of, all about the atoms and how the light waves rebound from them and hit my eye and what they do to the optic nerve and what it does to my brain. And of course, you find that what we call seeing a table lands you in mysteries and complications which you could hardly get to the end of. A child saying a child's prayer looks simple. And if you are content to stop there, well and good. But if you're not, and the modern world usually is not, if you want to go on and ask what is really happening, then you must be prepared for something difficult. If we ask for something more than simplicity, it's silly then 
to complain that something more is not simple. Very often, this silly procedure is adapted by people who are not silly, usually, but who consciously or unconsciously want to destroy Christianity. Such people put up a version of Christianity suitable for a child of six and make that the object of their attack. When you try to explain the Christian doctrine as it really is held by instructed adults, then they complain that you're making their heads turn around and that it's all too complicated and that if there really was a God that they, they are sure he would have made religion quote-unquote simple because simplicity is so beautiful, etc. You must be on your guard against these people for they will change their ground every minute and only waste your time. Notice, too, their idea of God making religion simple, quote-unquote, as if religion were something God invented and not his statement to us of certain quite unalterable facts about his own nature. Besides being complicated, reality, in my experience, is usually odd. It's not neat, not obvious, not what you expect. For instance, when you've grasped that the Earth and the other planets all go around the sun, you would naturally expect that all the planets were made to match all at equal distances from each other, say, or distances that regularly increased or all at the same size or getting bigger or smaller as you go farther from the sun. In fact, you find no rhyme or reason that we can see about either the size or the distances. Some of them have one moon, one has four, one has two, some have none, one has a ring. Reality, in fact, is usually something you could not have guessed. That is one of the reasons I believe Christianity. It is a religion you could not have guessed. If it offers us just the kind of universe we had always expected, I should feel we were making it up. But in fact, it is not the sort of thing anyone would have made up. It has just that strange twist about it that real things have. So let us leave behind all these children's philosophies, these simple answers. The problem is not simple, and the answer is not going to be simple either. What is the problem? Well, the problem is a universe that contains much in it that is obviously bad and apparently meaningless, but containing creatures like ourselves who know that it is bad and meaningless. There are only two views that face all these facts. One is the Christian view that this is a good world that has gone wrong, but still retains the memory of what it ought to have been. The other is the view called dualism. Now, dualism means the belief that there are two equal and independent powers at the back of everything, one of them good and the other bad. And that this universe is the battlefield in which these two powers endlessly fight a war. I personally think, and remember I'm quoting Lewis here, and I agree with him, I personally think that next to Christianity, dualism is the most manly and the most sensible creed on the market. But it has a problem. The two powers, or spirits, or gods, the good one and the bad one, are supposed to be quite independent. 
They both existed from all eternity. Neither of them made the other. Neither of them has any more right than the other to call itself God. Each presumably thinks it is good and thinks the other bad. One of them likes hatred and cruelty. The other likes love and mercy. And each backs its own view. Now what do we mean when we call one of them the good power and the other the bad power? Either we are merely saying that we happen to prefer the one to the other, like preferring beer to cider, or else we are saying that whatever the two powers think about it, and whichever we humans at the moment happen to like, one of them is actually wrong and actually mistaken in regards to itself as good. If we mean merely that we happen to prefer the first, then we must give up talking about good and evil at all. For good means what you ought to prefer, quite regardless of what you happen to like at any given moment. If being good meant simply joining the side you happen to fancy for no real reason, then good would not deserve to be called good. So we must mean that one of the two powers is actually wrong and the other actually right. But the moment you say that, you are putting into the universe a third thing in addition to the two powers. Some law or standard or rule of good which one of the two powers conforms to and the other fails to conform to. But since the two powers are judged by this standard, then this standard or the being who made this standard is farther back and higher up than either of them and he will be the real God. In fact, what we meant by calling them good and bad turns out to be that one of them is in a right relation to the real ultimate God, and the other is in a wrong relation to him. The same point can be made in a different way. If dualism is true, then the bad power must be being uh, a being who likes badness for its own sake. But in reality, we have no experience of anyone liking badness just because it's bad. The nearest we can get to it is cruelty. But in real life, people are cruel for one of two reasons. Either because they are sadists, that is, because they have a sexual perversion which makes cruelty a cause of sensual pleasure to them, or else for the sake of something they are going to get out of it, money or power or safety. But pleasure, money, power, and safety are all, as far as they go, good things. The badness consists in pursuing them by the wrong method or in the wrong way or too much. I do not mean, of course, that the people who do these things are not desperately wicked. I do mean that the wickedness, when you examine it, turns out to be the pursuit of some good in the wrong way. You can be good for the mere sake of goodness. You cannot be bad for the mere sake of badness. You can do a kind action when you are not feeling kind and when it gives you no pleasure simply because kindness is right. But no one ever did a cruel action simply because cruelty is wrong, only because cruelty was pleasant or useful to them. In other words, badness cannot succeed even in being bad in the same way in which goodness is good. Goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. And there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. 
we call sadism a sexual perversion. But you must first have the idea of normal sexuality before you can talk of something being perverted about it. You can see which is the perversion. Because you can explain the perverted from the normal, but you cannot explain the normal from the perverted. It follows that this bad power, who is supposed to be on an equal footing with the good power, and to love badness in the same way as good power loves goodness, is a mere bogey. doesn't exist. In order to be bad, he must have good things to want and then to pursue in the wrong way. He must have impulses which were originally good in order to be able to pervert them. But if he is bad, he cannot su supply himself either with good things to desire or with good impulses to pervert. He must be getting both from the good power. And if so, then he is not independent. He is part of the good power's world. He was made either by the good power or by some power above them both. Put it more simply still, to be bad he must exist and have intelligence and will. But existence, intelligence, and will are in themselves good. Therefore, he must be getting them from the good power. Even to be bad, he must borrow or steal from his opponent. And do you now begin to see why Christianity has always said that the devil is a fallen angel? That is not a mere story for children. It's a real recognition of the fact that evil is a parasite not an original thing. The powers which enable evil to carry out its evil plans are powers given by goodness. All things which enable a bad man to be effectively bad are in themselves good things. Resolution, cleverness, good looks, existence, etc. That is why dualism, in a strict sense, will not work. But I freely admit that real Christianity goes much closer to dualism than people think. That's a very important statement, one that we will come back to again. Uh, this is me talking now, I'm not quoting Lewis. Christianity does not affirm dualism, obviously, but it comes much closer to dualism than most people realize. Now I continue to quote, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was first created and went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism that this universe is at war. But it does not think that this is a war between independent powers. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. Enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed you might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening 
in the secret wireless of our friends. This is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from being together in the church. He does it by playing on our conceit and laziness and intellectual snobbery. I know someone will ask, do you really mean at this time of day to reintroduce our old friend, the devil, hoofs and horns and all? Well, what the time of day has to do with it, I don't know. And I'm not particularly interested in the hoofs and horns. But in other responses, my answer is, yes, I do. I do not claim to know anything about his personal appearance. If anyone really wants to know him better, I would say to that person, don't worry, if you really want to, you will. Whether you'll like what happens when you do is another question. With that, we'll finish our quoting, extensive quoting from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis concerning dualism and its explanation of the spiritual warfare that we are in on this planet. Rather than open up any more of this in the short time that we've got left, let me just say in closing that we are about to go into a realm of study that I want you to please be careful to engage in. On the one hand, we need to know these things, obviously. On the other hand, it's a dangerous subject because there can be an unhealthy interest in the dark supernatural. We have been so poorly educated in our churches concerning these issues that it has helped feed an unhealthy interest in pursuing them. And among charismatics especially, there can be almost a, uh, well, for lack of a better term, uh, a lust to poke around in unholy spirituality. Preoccupations with demons, preoccupations with principalities and powers, uh, poking around in names and uh, esoteric, mystical concepts of how to handle evil spirits and so forth. Please be aware of the danger of this. We don't need to go there. We need to go to the Lord Jesus, to the Scriptures, and where the Holy Scriptures give us an understanding that gives us permission, we will... Uh, go into other areas of explanation that maybe the scriptures themselves don't spell out, but do uh, give permission to to uh, examine. With that, let me just close this session by saying that God is sovereign, and in his sovereignty he has given you the power of choice. Your free will is not without limits. Your free will is influenced by things that were not your fault or under your control. God takes all that in consideration. But the core of you, your will, your power to choose, is a God-given and God-protected power. And when you pray, when you take your will on purpose before God, and though your emotions or your appetites or your desires pull you in another direction, something at the core of you, rather than following your lower inclinations, turns instead to God and says to him, I long 
to do your will. I long to know your will. I long to see your kingdom come and your will be done in this situation. Regardless, Father, of my weaknesses or my stumblings or my failures, please hear my cry and move on my behalf to fulfill your will in my life. In some form or other, you say that. All the power of heaven is behind your willful choice to pray. So, Father, as we come to the close of this limited but important study on your sovereignty and your greatness, I pray, Lord, that no word we've said would stay in people's minds if it was not in line with your heart and your mind and your will. But I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would take what we have offered that is true, that is right. I pray that all of it is and that your Holy Spirit would bless it and increase it and make us more and more and more uh, people who, under your sovereign grace, wield the sword of the Spirit for the overthrow of evil and the bringing forth of your kingdom. Until you come and all these questions are no longer of any value or purpose because life and light and love and truth is fully manifested. We pray for that in Jesus' holy name. Amen.